Hello, and welcome back to Ohio Folklore. I'm your host, Melissa Davies. I'm so glad you can join me for part two of the enigmatic and tragic story of Stuart Lathrop Pearson. If you haven't already listened to part one, please stop now and go back and listen to it first. Our episode today will make much more sense after you've listened to part one. If it's been a while since you've heard part one, here's a quick recap of the legend offered by Professor Tim Shutt. He has taught humanities at Kenyon College for about 33 years. For many of these years, he has offered ghost tours of the campus and has become somewhat of a resident expert on the many vibrant folk tales from the college's long history. Here, you'll get a feel for what it's like to be a member of one of his tour groups. You may notice that a few of the details he offers are new and conflicting to what you've heard in part one. No worries. We'll eventually explain all that. But for now, sit back, relax, and enjoy the tale as told by a true local and resident oral historian. Delta Kappa Exelon, the Deke fraternity at Kenyon, had been at Kenyon for a long time, since mid-19th century when such things started. Pearson's father was not only a Kenyan alum, but also a deke. And so uh, Stuart Lastrup Pearson was pledging the deeks. And as it happens, his father came up for his initiation, which took place on in late October, as I seem to recall, about October 28, 1905. And as part of the initiation, he was taken down to what was then the Columbus Canton Akron Railroad, uh, which still, it is now a bike trail runs right on the south of the campus, abutting the south of the campus. And anyway, they took him down to the track. It, uh, about a little bit less than uh, a mile past Kenyon, crosses the Kokosing River. Actually, it's a little closer to that. Uh, and there is a trestle bridge. They took Pearson down, tied him up, and left. After putting him on the tracks, the dispute later on, and President Pierce and I have seen direct evidence of this in letters and stuff, always claimed to believe that he was not tied to the tracks. He was tied up, hands and feet, but not to the tracks. And the idea, as I take it, no one has explicitly said this, but the idea, I presume, was that you are supposed to demonstrate that you trust your fraternity brothers to be with your life by, by lying on the tracks. Well, they knew that no train was scheduled, but an unscheduled locomotive headed that night into Mount Vernon for repair. And he was run over by the locomotive and killed. Was he tied to the track or not? And uh, publicly the Deeks always said he wasn't to this very day. Privately they said he was. Uh, President Pierce, I do believe, really did believe that he wasn't 
But here, I think, is the reason for it. Uh, his father, as I told you, was there. And his father was a relatively prominent person in Hamilton County in Cincinnati. And as a former Deke, I think his father helped tie him to the track, or certainly was there when he was tied to the track. And when they went down and found him and he was dead, Knox County officials who first were there thought that he had been tied to the track, but before dawn, uh, his body was back in Cincinnati. It always seemed if this happened now, and things like this have happened occasionally now, uh, you know, the family would clearly sue the college. And even then, in a less litigious age, such things did happen. There was never a lawsuit of any kind. No blame was put on the Deeks by the Pearson family. Uh, There was nationwide and even to some small degree international publicity. One cartoon from the Times shows the Deeks hooded like Ku Klux Klan guys laughing high into the track which is not the publicity one would hope for. You know, fatal fraternity fun at Kenyon, and it was 10 years before the college succeeded in attracting as many first-year students as it had in Stuart Lathrop Pearson's years. So it did do damage to the college. But I think that the reason that the story he was not tied has remained is because Dad did not want his wife to know what happened. Uh, and, you know, clearly the Deeks were exonerated. I presume, I don't know if it was just his wife, his friends and family, his position in Cincinnati and elsewhere. He just didn't want to be the dad who killed his son. I can't thank Professor Shutt enough for his kind recitation of the oral history as it was passed down to him by others. As you've heard, the assumption that Stuart had been tied on the tracks remains the focal point of the story. One detail that's new and different, however, is the implication of Stuart's father. In an attempt to explain Newbold's staunch defense of the Deeks, a theory has surfaced as to his involvement, or at least his complicity, in the entire event. Is it possible that Newbold knew that his son would be tied? Could he have even taken things further and participated in the event himself? The theory is intriguing, if not diabolical. However, considering the sworn testimonies of all those involved that night, Newbold Pearson remained with the Deeks at the lodge and later with his fellow committee members as they were retrieving another pledge. That's a solid alibi negating any chance that he was directly involved if Stewart was indeed tied to the tracks. Now, whether this was a common practice and whether he might have had knowledge that someone would be tying him to the tracks is impossible to know. In either case, a considerable conspiracy of silence among all Deke members would have had to held together under the heavy scrutiny of the investigations that followed. And the investigations would not go unencumbered. Coroner Scarborough would receive an anonymous letter signed, quote, 
five members of Kenyan alumni, which threatened physical violence if he did not desist all efforts immediately. As directly quoted, the letter read, We do not want to make any threats, but if you do not cease your persecution of Kenyon College, you will hear from us, and we will surely make it warm for you. The five-page letter had been postmarked in Delaware, Ohio, and written on stationery from the Hotel Donovan. Coroner Scarborough vowed to disregard the threat entirely. As the grand jury hearing proceeded, many explosive testimonies would be revealed. I'll list them here for you one by one. The train that struck Stewart at 9.41 p.m., when his watch was found to have been stopped, was what's called a special. It had only an engine and tender with no cars behind it. The term special refers to the fact that it was not included on the routine schedule of trains. The locals ordinarily became accustomed to when scheduled trains came by, and this means that if the act was indeed a prank meant to scare young Stewart, the fraternity brothers would have likely believed that no train was due at that time. They would have mistakenly believed that he was not in harm's way, since the next scheduled train wouldn't arrive at the bridge until much later. The engine which struck him was being brought in for service. You might recall Professor Shutt explaining a bit about that in his earlier statement. Secondly, the conductor, engineer, and fireman, the man shoveling coal from the tender to fuel the engine, were the only passengers on the train. These three men stated they saw nothing of Stewart as the train crossed the bridge. They felt no impact either. At first, they couldn't make sense of this. Large animals like cows and pigs were known to be hit often by trains in those days. Not only were objects or animals standing on the tracks visible, but the jolt from the impact couldn't go unnoticed. The engineer of this special train would later testify that a person lying, however, between the rails would be quite difficult to see. Due to issues of visibility, mainly the line of sight offered from his vantage point. He confirmed that the whistle was blowing and the bell was ringing as they approached the bridge, as was customary and required at that time. The crew would only notice that something was amiss when they stopped later that night at a station. The fireman noticed a piece of Stewart's trousers stuck to the brake arm. However, no blood or other evidence was visible on the outside of the engine. When the sun finally rose the next morning, the engineer would make a full inspection of the undercarriage of the engine. There, he would find blood, brain matter, and hair stuck inside the workings. This provided further evidence that Stewart had indeed been lying on the tracks and then suctioned under the wheels of the engine. Claims that he had been startled awake and then mistakenly ran in front of the train did not fit with this evidence. Even President Pierce himself would concede that this theory no longer made sense. While testifying for Coroner Scarborough, he acknowledged that Stewart had been lying flat on the rails. Quote, but I should hardly think that he would have lain down on the tracks, unquote. On realizing the implausibility of the theory that he'd fallen asleep on the track on his own volition. And taking this line of thinking one step further, Newbold Pearson would testify that he couldn't imagine his son, even in a sleepy state, would have chosen, of all places, to lie himself down on the tracks. 
The spaces between the ties were filled with sharp-edged gravel. Surely he would not have chosen this place to nap. And besides, Newbold believed he would have awoken at the sound of the oncoming engine. Newbold would go on to testify, providing the exact instructions given to the pledges that night. They were not to sit or lie down at their specified locations, but to stand there and wait until they heard three whistles from the approaching committee members. Then, they were to prostrate themselves and mumble some words until the committee took them away. Those instructions were very clear. After explaining this to the coroner and the prosecutor, Newbold managed to ask them, could some other friend have meddled with Stewart? Newbold's confidence that the whole thing had been an accident was wavering as the investigation progressed. You may remember that Stewart's basket was found on the tracks directly between the rails when his committee came to retrieve him. It was questioned how the basket could have remained there after the train came through. Dr. Workman, the town physician, had testified that he had done an experiment of sorts and placed a similar basket on the tracks just before a train came through. Indeed, it was not touched, having about six inches of clearance to spare from the bottom of the engine. A pledge from a separate fraternity, Zeta Alpha, a Mr. Paul Barber, testified that at 7.30 that same night, his fraternity brothers had instructed him to go to the bridge and walk about 25 feet out onto it. The act was reckless, as standing on the narrow bridge proved quite dangerous. Doing so could cause entrapment by a fast-approaching train. Barber was told to wait there until someone from the fraternity came to meet him. His wait would last about an hour and 15 minutes. Barber hadn't seen Pearson or any of the other pledges while he was there, but he recalled hearing the special train as he was being led, blindfolded, back to campus by his own fraternity brothers. As was custom, the rope he brought with him was tied around his waist as they led him back to campus. Another Deke pledge testified that he had also been instructed to go to the entrance of the train bridge at an earlier time that night. He had waited an hour and 15 minutes before two fraternity brothers met him, blindfolded him, and led him back to campus. He denied having ever been tied to the tracks or restrained in any way. The testimonies of these two pledges proved that the fraternities were known to use the railroad tracks and specifically the bridge in their initiation night activities. Only a few weeks before Stewart's death, he and other pledges also took part in what's called a cane rush, which was a common event on some campuses in those days. It was a brutal, no-rules game in which pledges from various Greek organizations tried to find and steal their opponent's walking cane and carry it across a goal line. Physical aggression and violence were expected in this yearly tradition. Stewart had sprained his knee while participating in the event. One week before his death, Stewart and his fellow Deke Pledges had been forced by fraternity members to crawl from Old Kenyon to the chapel on their hands and knees. He was prodded with sticks by Deke members who followed behind him. And as a result, he developed abscesses on his knees which required bandaging at Dr. Workman's office in town. 
These bandages were yet on Stewart's legs when the body was found. This confirmed instance of hazing, combined with the yearly sanctioned cane rush, suggested an air of complacency from college administration about acts of physical aggression and cruelty among students. Newbold Pearson had known about Stewart's problems with his knees. Stewart had written home about the troubles he'd been having with his wounds. They had required Lansing on three separate occasions. Another revelation involved Newbold's efforts to bring Stewart's home on the special train back to Cincinnati. He had expressed anxiety that on transporting his son's body back to Cincinnati, the train would be stopped and inspected by authorities in Columbus. Perhaps he thought this was more likely since it was a special train and would not have been listed on any of the schedules. Newbold suggested that someone write out a letter to make things look official in case he would run into trouble. Just as Stewart's remains had been loaded and ready for transport, Newbold dictated a letter to Dr. Workman, who began to write. Newbold swore that he demanded the letter be written and acknowledged that the three of them, Newbold, President Pierce, and Dr. Workman, knew what they were doing could be considered illegal. Newbold told Dr. Workman to write, quote, This is the body of Stuart L. Pearson, who has been killed by being run over by a train at Gambier and is being shipped with my permission, unquote. Dr. Workman's hand trembled as he wrote and signed the paper, handing it over to Newbold. The train was never stopped. Newbold would give the paper to the undertaker on reaching Cincinnati. One last explosive revelation was entered into evidence by Prosecutor Stilwell. It was a letter written by Stewart's roommate, York, the man who first found his body there on the bridge. He had written the letter home to his mother. She turned it over as state's evidence. It was said to confess the truth of the grisly details of Stewart's death. The exact contents of the letter, however, were not revealed to the public pending the ongoing investigation. This concludes the most explosive revelations contained in the grand jury testimonies. President Pierce's testimony had lasted over two hours. He was questioned about why he had sent the body off to Cincinnati before Coroner Scarborough had a chance to even examine it. He testified that Newbold's urgent pleas to take his son's body home had convinced him to allow it, and Newbold's own testimony corroborated this. When asked whether he would issue a campus-wide policy against hazing practices, Pierce said that he would not. He claimed that doing so would amount to admission of guilt. He was sure that no incidents of hazing ever took place at the college. Signs of an active resistance to the prosecutor's efforts were building. On November 12th, the Knox County Sheriff and a deputy were dispatched to Kenyon College, Bexley Hall, to investigate a burglary and assault charge. On returning to his room one evening, a student found his roommate, a Mr. McGarvey, bound by his hands and feet, gagged with the towel, and left unconscious on the floor. A small amount of money had been taken from the room, but the money in his trouser pockets was left untouched. On his chest was pinned a note that read, quote, this will do for this time, but if we come again, it will be worse. It was rumored that McGarvey, a student of the Theological Seminary, 
had been planning to cooperate in Coroner Scarborough's investigation. The beating he received was severe and his recovery uncertain. Reports suggested that he suffered convulsions and seizures and agonizing pain from where physicians believed he had been kicked in the head and the torso while lying on the floor. After a very painstaking recovery, McGarvey's only statements to the press was that he recalled falling asleep on the couch in his room at about 9.30 that evening when he was stunned awake by someone shoving a towel down his throat. He was then blindfolded and bound by the hands and feet. He had no memory of events after that. The sheriff began an investigation, which in the end would prove fruitless. It was at this time that Coroner Scarborough's horse was reported to have been stolen from his barn. It would later be found on the side of the road outside Gambier after having suffered some, quote, great inhumane treatment, as the newspapers described it. Scarborough was enraged at this and demanded a follow-up investigation. And somehow, yet again, law enforcement stated they were unable to turn up any guilty parties. Stilwell would produce what evidence he had amassed to the grand jury. This included details from the dozens of witness testimonies gathered by Coroner Scarborough, the matching microscopic rope fibers found inside Stewart's clothing, and the growing indications of an organized effort to intimidate witnesses and thwart the prosecution's efforts. Despite all this, Stilwell acknowledged great doubt as to the chance of an indictment and even lesser confidence of a successful prosecution. And indeed, on December 1st, 1905, 14 members of the Knox County Grand Jury returned no indictment on the question of the death of Stuart Pearson. Remarkably, the members took the extraordinary step of clarifying their firm belief that the young man from Cincinnati had indeed been tied to the track. The prosecution's inability to name a specific person or persons ultimately led to a failed indictment. Following court proceedings, Stilwell was quoted as saying, A most thorough investigation has been made in the Pearson case, yet no indictment could be returned, and there was no positive evidence fixing the blame upon anyone connected with the case. It is true that 14 members of the grand jury were of the belief that Pearson was tied to the track, yet it was impossible for them to determine who was responsible for the death. I shall watch this case, and if at any time, new evidence should be established that would fix blame upon any person or persons, I will call a special grand jury and will cause an indictment to be returned. No such special grand jury was ever convened. The case was essentially dropped by the prosecution. Someone had killed Stuart Pearson. Justice would go unserved. That's not to say that the story ends there. The likelihood that no indictment would be returned was apparent not only to Stilwell, but for most everyone following the case. The story around town, and indeed around the nation, was that the guilty parties would go free. The going opinion was that this was a horrific tale of a young man who died in his efforts to belong to the group that killed him. Delta Kappa Epsilon and Kenyon College knew that this was the conclusion in the court of public opinion. 
it was time for some heavy lifting PR efforts to turn that ship around. The fraternity's 59th National Convention, held in New York on November 10th of that year, had been overshadowed by the controversy. Leadership issued a public statement claiming accusations of wrongdoing had been, quote, completely false and had no basis. The death had been wholly accidental. However, no specific explanation was offered as to how such an accident occurred. They accused Coroner Scarborough of self-importance and aggrandizement. They cried foul over media smear campaigns of their organization. They forcefully denied engaging in any cruel or ritualized barbaric treatments of their young recruits. President Pierce and another Kenyan faculty member, a Dr. Reeves, had been present at the convention. They set aside an entire afternoon to speak of the victimization of the Deeks who'd been wrongly accused. A couple days before the final indictment proceeding, Kenyan college officials announced their intent to set the record straight among the public at large. They announced that they would print pamphlets for wide distribution, including all the witness testimonies from Coroner Scarborough's investigation. Their primary targets were the newspaper outlets who had provided the heaviest, unfavorable coverage of the event. The college was of the opinion that comments from Coroner Scarborough's witnesses had been cherry-picked and removed from context. At first, I had trouble finding this pamphlet, but thankfully came upon it before publishing these episodes. This fully transcribed text of 33 testimonies is an invaluable original source document. Having read all the testimonies myself, I can assure you that I have corrected or eliminated false claims which I discovered in newspaper reports at the time. All of what I have told you thus far is congruent with these first-hand witness testimonies. It's as close as we'll ever get to actually being there on that fateful night and the immediate days that followed. For anyone who's interested in seeing the document itself, I'll post a link to it on Ohio Folklore's Facebook page. The pamphlet Kenyon College published conspicuously included an addendum. It contained 12 legal opinions on the findings of Coroner Scarborough. All opinions were written by prominent attorneys at the time, and each and every one of them claimed total exoneration for the college. The opinions also vociferously denied allegations that Stewart had been tied to the tracks. Eight of the 12 attorneys maintained law practices in Ohio, most of them centered within a reasonable distance from Kenyon College. The leaders of Kenyon College at that time believed that these testimonies and legal opinions exonerated the institution. They claimed that media coverage had presented the college in an unfair light, and indeed, many media reports were later proven exaggerated and in some cases patently false. Kenyon College cried foul over the wild untruths that were damaging the institution's reputation. The political fallout from Stewart's tragic death would cause a downward slide in total enrollment. Numbers of enrolled students would not return to normal until a full 10 years. Despite the college's efforts to change the narrative, the story would live on as the tragic tale of a young man killed in his pursuit to belong to a group of men called Brothers. Stewart's name would be referenced in subsequent reports of copycat crimes. 
One article out of East Liverpool, Ohio, dated December 1906, read, Torn from the rails just as the express thundered past, how two high school victims of the hazing practice were spared the fate of Stuart Pearson. This was one of several copycat incidents that were reported across the country. On a much more positive note, the story produced a movement that touted anti-hazing values. Presidents of large universities, such as Yale, made public their intention to enforce anti-hazing policies on their campuses. Despite these efforts, President Pierce was quoted as saying that the problem of hazing lied with students' parents, who were charged with the responsibility of raising caring and peaceful young men. He implied that one's character was basically formed by the time he enters college. He added that mothers were the principal forces in young men's lives, implying that cruel behavior likely resulted from poor parenting, more specifically, poor mothering. Such was the thinking in those times especially. The state of Ohio, however, would disagree. On March 29, 1906, the Ohio legislature would pass the Harper Bill. This legislation made hazing a state crime. A fine of up to $200 or six months in jail, or both, would be ascribed to people found guilty of engaging in hazing activities. The law also applied to complicity in such activity, including administrators or faculty knowing of such incidents. The Harper Bill was written in direct response to the publicity surrounding Stuart Pearson's death. Legislatures would acknowledge Stuart Pearson specifically when signing it into law. President Pierce continued to deny that Stewart's death had anything to do with hazing whatsoever. Interestingly, a copy of Kenning College's 1906 yearbook offers a retrospective view of the entire incident from inside the institution. An introductory statement describes Stewart's death as a, quote, sad accident. It bemoaned the media coverage, which disregarded the truth. It acknowledged that the college's PR efforts were ineffective in countering the negative media coverage. Essentially, the writer of this introductory yearbook statement conceded that the public now assumed that Stewart had been killed by some unknown person or persons connected to the college. It cried foul over the wide reach of the media reports, leading many people who had never heard of Kenyon to now associate it solely with the tragedy. It expressed appreciation for the students who stood true and bore the pain of the entire ordeal, and it lamented the, quote, pitiful miscarriage of justice, which I assume refers to the grand jury's assertion that Stewart had been tied to the tracks and the identity of his assailant unknown. A story as big and complex as this one takes many years to distill within the collective unconscious. A folktale doesn't truly become a folktale until the story embeds itself within our common knowledge, within the stories we tell one another sitting around the campfire, within the warnings we give our children heading out for their first college experience. I was happy to find a reflective article on the subject written over 17 years after the event. After all that time, what parts of the story stuck with the general public? In 1923, a reporter from the Chicago Tribune defined Stewart's death as the, quote, human limit of hazing, and regretted that no one had ever been brought to justice for the crime. 
The Deeks had taken to attributing Stewart's own carelessness as the cause of his death. Prosecutor Stilwell would later be criticized for his failure to identify any guilty persons. And the story passed on into history. But before closing this episode, I'd like to offer a collection of interesting theories and other side notes that offer new light on this very complex case. First is a theory that I've pulled from Prosecutor Stilwell's questions of witnesses. He clearly considered the possibility that members of rival fraternities could have been involved. He asked many questions as to whether meddling in each other's initiation activities was a common practice. He didn't get any definitive answers either way. However, it's worth considering, since all fraternities were having initiations that night. And, as Paul Barber's testimony revealed, he himself was sent to the bridge earlier that night. It's entirely possible that a rival fraternity could have meddled with Stewart in an attempt to disrupt the Deke's initiation process. In what seemed like a moment of quiet realization, Newbold had also posed this question of Prosecutor Stilwell when he asked if someone might have meddled with his son. While this theory is interesting and perhaps even plausible, no evidence was ever unearthed to support it. You may remember that Taylor was the deep chair of the initiation committee who instructed Stewart to go to the bridge. He was also the one who allegedly asked a man to clean the bridge for payment. During his testimony, Taylor was asked to list the items each pledge was to carry in his basket that night. The required items included a lunch, a pack of cigarettes, a rope, a razor, and a bottle of chloroform. Taylor explained that the chloroform was meant as a bluff to scare the young recruits and that it was never actually used. Newbold Pearson recalled going around town with Stewart earlier that day to purchase every item on the list, which included each of these items. Inexplicably, however, Dr. Workman would testify that the only items found inside Stewart's basket were the lunch, the cigarettes, and the rope. What happened to the razor and chloroform? No explanation was ever offered. Taylor did offer, however, his own theory that's separate from these issues. Here's the explanation as he told it himself. Quote, There is only one place on the bridge where a fellow can comfortably sit down, and that is the south abutment. I thought perhaps he heard the train coming and knew that the fellows were coming from the other side and thought maybe this was an especially long train and didn't want it to be between himself and the fellows when they came. And he hurried to cross on the other side and in crossing the track slipped and was struck by the train before he could cross. He may have fallen and possibly he didn't see how close the train was to him. The last little tidbit I'll leave you with, I have received from Professor Shutt, who you heard from earlier in this episode. He shared a remarkable discovery, which, if true, offers further evidence of a conspiracy and cover-up. Well, here, and I'll tell you one other bit of evidence, which is where I heard uh, this, uh, a young woman who was one of our first softball players.
players. It's been 20 odd years since she graduated, but I knew her reasonably well also. And she worked uh, in the alumni office. And she found in the files there uh, and gave me what at least reported to be, and, you know, the written in a fountain pen on faded flimsy paper and all the rest, it, it looks like what it claimed to be, she, which was reported to be a letter from an employee of the railroad who, there was a roundhouse, which there really was. Uh, I've seen it in a 1904 uh, map of Mount Vernon right down by the river, and that was a repair facility, of course, among other things, for the railroad, and that's where the locomotive was headed to the roundhouse, and then this guy was spending the night in Mount Vernon, reportedly, and was bored. And so he took a long walk, and he saw, he claimed in his letter to President Pierce, uh, Pierce and being tied, and said so. He claimed, and, what, what was that he claimed? He saw Stuart Lathrop Pearson being tied to the track. Oh, the employee. And this evidence, I, you know, uh, that was what the letter really did say. And what he also said, and, and this is what gave me the idea, which to me explained, because I always wondered why there was no lawsuit. I mean, that, you know, that you would have, I would think, even that absolutely clear case. He did not in so many words say his father was tying him. What he did say was if Mrs. Pearson knew what her husband was doing, it would break her heart. I'm paraphrasing, but that is in essence what he said. He did not say he was tying him, but he did say that he was involved in a way that would be heartbreaking to the family, which is why I think one way or another he was involved, and that's why he got the body out of there, and that's why there was no lawsuit. The full truth of whatever happened that night has long faded. Whether the apparition that sometimes is spotted on the trail bridge is that of Stuart Pearson, one can only guess. If we are to believe that ghosts linger when the circumstances of their deaths prove too unacceptable, then this would be the case. There are real values that we can take from this long and winding tale of the short life and tragic death of Stuart Pearson. It's the values we place on belonging and acceptance. It's the values we place on truth and justice. And it's the values we place on accountability and responsibility. We can grow and learn from the worst natures of our character and the worst impulses among us. Perhaps we must. If Stuart's spirit does linger on, I'd like to think that's what he's trying to tell us. This concludes part two of the mysterious death of Stuart Pearson. Thanks so much for listening. If you've enjoyed the episode, Please subscribe, rate, and review it on your preferred podcast platform. Ohio Folklore is easily found on Facebook, and if you have a legend you'd like featured in a future episode, please let me know. And as always, keep wondering.